Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. We are so glad that you decided to join us today. My name is Todd Pruitt. I'm joined, as always, by Carl Truman and Amy Bird. They play a fine supporting role in my ministry here at Mortification of Spin. And I I don't say it enough, but I'm very grateful for these two. They do a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff for me. They make sure I have water bottles. And, you know, I tell you. These two youngsters are just all complaints. They're just need the to be best. submitted to Todd. Yeah, yeah, they are the best. So thanks once again, um, Carl and Amy, for joining me on my program. Well, we have a special guest today. He's a friend of the uh, show. He's a friend of us personally. It's Dr. Jonathan Master. Jonathan is the Dean of the School of Divinity at Karen University. He's also a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And... He is known to periodically show up at Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, where Carl Truman is pastor. And Jonathan, that means we have all kinds of questions for you about Carl, about his abilities as a pastor, his sensitivity as a pastor, that kind of thing. We might be able to get into that later. But I know that Carl has a line of inquiry that we really do need to get to the heart of. Carl. Yeah, it's good to have you with us, Jonathan. Thanks, Pastor Carl. (laughs) Well, we're going to start a new slot on the show today. It's called Sins of the Fathers, where we allow our guests to confess some serious and egregious crime against the church that one of their ancestors may have. And and thereby break the generational spirit. And receive absolution at the hands of the spin team. Yes. John, I believe you have a particularly vicious sin of one of your ancestors that you need to now publicly confess and, and repent of. I'm sure there are many. I don't even know <laughs> which, which one you're trying to, to I'm pinpoint, thinking of but. Machen. Right. Yeah. Well, so th- yeah, that's, it's, um, it's true. My, uh, my dad's grandfather was the moderator of the general assembly for the PCUSA. He was a minister in the PCUSA United Presbyterian church throughout the early part of the 20th century. And he happened to actually be the moderator in 1936, and he, he won out against Machen. And then Machen left, you know, and then started what would become the OPC, but it initially was called the PCA. And so uh, my um, dad's grandfather sued him wow. and, and won the suit, mm. actually. Mm. And mm. Uh, mm. so there you go. How I dare guess. you? And How you, dare you, Have you sir? repented for that, Jonathan? I, I feel like this is a big step, actually, good. this what public good, repentance. Good. What gives <laughs> you the right? Yeah. Mm. The other question I have, Jonathan, is there a statue of your father's grandfather anyway not that i'm aware of God, we would love to tear something down. oh yeah because we wanted a campaign <laughs> to have it torn down right right there's yeah. no chance you could put one up for us that we could launch a campaign against when we're off the air i can point you to the cemetery but uh, i don't <laughs> think there's a statue <laughs> that's a great because we're big fans of tearing down statues <laughs> absolutely on, on this absolutely. program good 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 Actually, what we seriously want to talk about, I should say, we te absolvo, you're absolving your, your grandfather's sin there, Jonathan. Mm-hmm. I did make the sign of the cross, but you can't <laughs> see it, but it works in time-space continuum. What we want to talk to you about today is the issue of 
pastoral integrity. And to be very specific at this point, you and I both had a, a mutual friend, Ian D. Campbell, who's a Free Church of Scotland minister who sadly committed suicide earlier this year. And then it emerged over the weeks and months after that very, very sad event that his life had not been all that it should have been as a, as a Christian minister. And it raises all kinds of questions about pastoral accountability, pastoral transparency, pastoral integrity, and also how churches and organizations faced with these kind of challenges should respond. How much is too much information? How much is too little information? So that's where we want to go today, Jonathan. But do you just have any initial thoughts on that before we start to think uh, in, in more precise terms? Well, just to clarify, I didn't know Ian D. Well, he was someone whom I had met. I knew him by reputation more than through any uh, personal connection or, or friendship, but was obviously, along with a whole lot of people, very uh, influenced by his ministry. And I suppose the thing that strikes me is that whether it's someone who's well-known, as Ian D. was in certain circles, or someone who is less well-known or only known to his local congregation, and I've, I've experienced those kinds of things, too, with pastors who were, who were close to me. The ripple effect of these kinds of sins among pastoral leaders is really tremendous, and it constantly amazes me the extent of the damage that's caused by some of these things. It really drives home the seriousness of the calling and the the importance of church discipline, the importance of dealing with these things publicly, as Paul tells us to do, uh, if an elder is going to be rebuked, to do it publicly so that people may fear. And so all of those things were really brought home by this fairly public set of circumstances that emerged uh, last winter and spring. Mm. Uh, Carl and I have talked about this before. Um, In fact, we may have done a podcast where we asked the the question um, about uh, whether or not adultery, for instance, is a um, unquestionable disqualifying sin for, for ministers. And um, I believe we talked about this at one point on our podcast and the three of us agreed that it was, it was with Derek Thomas. That's right. That's right. And we agreed that it was on the grounds that it just simply renders a man incapable of fulfilling some of the key qualifications at that point forward for, for being an overseer. Now, can they be restored to fellowship in the church? Of course, gloriously so. Grace is real. But that there is something unique about the responsibility given to ministers, that there are certain sins that once committed render a man incapable of, of holding particular offices in the church. And that topic came up in a conversation recently I was having with someone because he was lamenting the fact that his brother, who was once a, a godly man, went to a Christian university, has formal training, was uh, active in their church. And this was years ago. And the pastor had an affair with his wife. And this has been probably 30 years ago. And the man spiritually has never, he basically punted the faith at that point. Now he's responsible for that. You know, nobody made, has made those choices for him, but Clearly, that adulterous minister has a measure of responsibility in the dissolution of this man's faith, and it's a very scary situation to be in. It broke my heart to to hear the story unfold. Yeah, I met people in that same situation, and it's amazing how devastating the effects are. It's mm-hmm. It's not unlike the kind of thing 
you encounter when you talk to someone who has a parent who has done something horrific. Yes. I mean, on the one hand, you want to say, well, this individual is responsible for the way in which they respond to their yeah. parents' sin. But nonetheless, we all recognize there is just a, a huge measure of accountability and, mm-hmm. and for whoever it was that caused this child to stumble. So I agree with you. I think we, we pay too little attention to that important role and that important responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think about Paul's instructions to Timothy to guard carefully, to watch carefully both your life and your doctrine, that those two issues in a minister's life are complementary, that we're to adorn our preaching and our carefulness and our caution with doctrine, we're to adorn that um, with godliness, and uh, that there will be fruit either way. There'll be fruit of the neglect of that or fruit of the attendance of to that. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely right. And I think the order there is somewhat striking. You can probably make too mm-hmm. much out of it, but watch your life right. and doctrine. And they're both there, but I think mm-hmm. the life is something vital. The flip side of that as well is when Paul describes his own ministry to the Thessalonian church in First Thessalonians 2, mm-hmm. he talks about sharing not only the gospel of God, right. but also our own selves with yes. you. And, you know, in, in addition to the harm that's caused by these kind of ministerial failings, mm-hmm. there's also this great loss of opportunity because what gospel ministry is supposed to consist of is the sharing not only of the gospel, but of the life of the person. Right. And what blessing it is to the church when there's a consistency between his profession and his preaching and the life that he lives, mm-hmm. what blessings then accrue to a church that is blessed enough to have a pastor who has integrity about his life. So I often wonder like how the struggle for pastors, like in listening to that verse, Jonathan, just sharing of yourselves and sharing of your life with your congregation, because they are kind of under a microscope and, mm. and it can be difficult. The struggle between, you know, yes, I am a sinner, mm-hmm. but I'm, set apart for the Lord in the special office and you are called to this higher kind of living as a model and to be sharing your life, people see you. Right. I mean, there's a, a transparency there and, and I think it's hard for pastors even to, to make friends sometimes for that reason. Yeah, I think that can be a real challenge of not only for the pastor, but for his wife and, mm-hmm. and perhaps other members of his family too. And I think this might be, and this is a fine line, and different people walk it and navigate it differently, but but I do think there's actually a place for pastors to, I mean, it's obvious that pastors are human beings who are sinners, and I think a measure of vulnerability and transparency about that is not a bad thing. Now, right. obviously, there are limits to that, and it's not as if you want to be parading your dirty laundry around, but right. I think actually it can be a tremendous encouragement and, and, in fact, can really teach people when they see you living a life of ongoing repentance, repentance yeah. and uh, an ongoing, you know, striving after the Lord. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you, you referred to it as a kind of higher life and I know what you mean. I mean, I think, I think pastors and elders, <laughs> no, no, yeah. I yeah. didn't mean yeah. that, but, but I mean, not <laughs> greater not, responsibility. Not, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And it's true. Obviously pastors and elders are held to a, a high standard, but at the same time, I think that can bleed over into a sense that, you know, I can't let them know that I have right. any sin at all. And right. that is actually unhealthy yeah. That's really, yeah, because yeah. then the congregation can't really 
even in any way associate with you or connect with mm-hmm. you in, in their own struggles. Yeah, I think that there are really appropriate and healthy ways for a pastor to acknowledge that he is a fellow traveler, a fellow struggler. And again, as you said, there are certain lines that he doesn't want to cross. I think it's really foolish if a pastor gets up in front of his congregation and says, you know, I really have a lust problem. You know, women, you know, between 20 and 25, look out. You know, I've really, that would be really <laughs> foolish for a pastor to do. That said, there would be appropriate ways for a pastor to acknowledge that he, too, is a fellow struggler, that each day he deals with indwelling sin and, and has to ward off temptation of, of various kinds, that that's important. And that churches need to be okay with the fact that their pastor has not reached a perfected state of sanctification. A higher life. <laughs> yeah, and, and, that, and that's one of the hard parts is that most pastors carry with them the knowledge that, again, if you were to ask their congregation, do you expect your pastor to be perfect? They would all say no. But then when they actually do see him behaving as someone who hasn't been completely sanctified, it, it tends to throw them for a loop a little, a little bit seems to be a a challenge you know imagine having carl in your home you know one evening for dinner (laughs) how disappointing that would be (laughs) (laughs) i'm going to treat that with a silent contempt (laughs) no i mean you know one of the things that pastors and christians in general but pastors and elders in particular need to exemplify is humility in isaiah 66 when the lord says to this one i will look to the one who is humble and contrite of heart Mm -hmm. and who trembles at my word i don't see how you can exemplify humility and trembling at the word of god without communicating in some way and again you know the, the details aren't necessarily the significant thing here that i am in need of the conviction of the word of god i am in need of repentance and change i i stand and come before the lord as a sinner saved only by his grace and so that i think actually is an important thing to communicate but as you say i mean there's there's wisdom that's needed in terms of some mm-hmm. of the specifics mm-hmm. and, I, and i think one of the challenges that a lot of pastors have is one of isolation and so the very thing that god gives us as a as a means towards our sanctification that is the fellowship of brothers and sisters who spur us on and sharpen us is oftentimes the very thing that many pastors aren't really partakers of, either because they feel awkward getting close to someone in their church or, or for whatever reason. But the statistics seem to be pretty clear. Anytime any set of metrics is set up to measure these kinds of things, typically pastors are more isolated than the typical member of a church. And that can be dangerous. Well, it can absolutely be dangerous, and it's not always a healthy pattern. The only thing I would add to that, though, is that, you know, no regular accountability partner or any of the other things that people might want to put in mm-hmm. place is going to prevent some of the kinds of things. we right. In other words, the simplest way to put it is this. If a man's going to lie to his wife, mm-hmm. then there's really not anything that will stop him from lying to his accountability partner. Right. And I've, ex- I've experienced that with someone whom I met with on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. I would ask him the tough questions. I mean, in that sense, my conscience is clear. Right. But, you know, he wasn't telling me the truth. Right. So He was already so, lying to his wife, and so lying right, to you was right, not right, a big right. leap. So, yeah. Right. So it's only, it's only as good as the degree of honesty and the degree of humility with which you're going to approach it. That said, I agree with you. So I'm not, I'm not taking away yep. from what you're saying. I'm just saying... You know, sometimes in hearing that, we say, okay, well, then it must be that pastors have to meet for coffee with someone and get asked this set of five questions. And 
there the magic. may be value in that, but yeah. that's not magic. Yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah. magic accountability group. Yeah, exactly. I wonder if we could take the conversation a slightly different direction at this point. Pastoral falls, tragic though they are, do happen. The other side of that is how does the church respond? Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that we saw in the Ian D. Campbell situation was a pretty good response on the whole from mm-hmm. the Free Church of Scotland. They didn't speak too early because they couldn't say what they did not know. When they finally released a public statement, they said enough to assure people that they'd done a proper investigation and they'd come to appropriate conclusions. They didn't give salacious details, but they gave enough for those with eyes to see, to know that something serious had happened and had been dealt with appropriately. It seems to me, Jonathan, that if there's any good thing that comes out of a pastoral fall, it gives the church an opportunity to demonstrate to members of the church and to the watching world that it does take seriously that which it claims to believe in, and it doesn't matter who you are, you will be held to account by the church for your sinful actions. What do you think of that? No, I think it's a great point, and that was one of the the impressions that has remained with me from that whole episode. You and I did have a conversation about this, and one of the things that really impressed me was I, in my work here with the Alliance, got a letter from the Free Church of Scotland assembly clerk, and he said, you know, here's something that we thought might pertain to the wider Christian community. Uh, Obviously, it was a Free Church of Scotland decision, but here it is. And then there was an excerpt of the petition that was approved and basically didn't give a a whole lot of prurient details, but just said that he was disqualified. He'd engaged in moral misconduct, and they instructed the clerk of the assembly to notify sister churches and even mainstream publishers of Dr. Campbell's work, and then as well asked us to pray. So I thought that was about as biblical and godly a response from the church as you could hope for. Again, there weren't salacious details, Mm -hmm. but it was public, and they made an effort to actually reach out to people whose, you know, ministries had been in some way connected with Dr. Campbell's own. And I just, I thought that was really exemplary. Now, you know, in terms of the wider world, as we all know, you're never going to make everyone happy. And people are always going to say, well, you should have given us more detail or, you know, you should have come out more quickly or we should know everything. You know, so in that sense, you'll never make everyone happy. But I agree with you. I think the witness of the church is something that can actually be on display throughout even a tragedy like this. Yeah, and I think one of the points to make as well is that there is no statute of limitations on these kind of mm-hmm. issues as far as the public is concerned. Mm-hmm. When a Christian church or organization you know, goes out of its way to hide right. a ministry-disqualifying sin in this way, they're really saving up trouble for later on because it doesn't matter if it's five years, ten years, fifteen years down the line. Sooner or later, it's going to blow into the public realm, Mm -hmm. and then those who were involved in, probably for good reasons perhaps, trying to keep the lid on something, they're going to be hopelessly exposed to to public ridicule at that point. Yeah, Yeah, that's part, and and that's the insanity of the cover-up. Because how could this not be learned at this point? How How can an organization, a church, whatever, not know at this point that the cover-up is always exposed. Very few people have the expectation 
that a Christian organization or a church, you know, will never ever be touched by a scandalous situation or be infiltrated by somebody, you know, like an adulterer. I mean, most people understand that can happen to the best church, to the best Christian organization. It's when these churches and these groups seek to cover it up. Right. We expect them to, to, to say, be the responsible, to, you know, exactly, reactors say, here. This is what happened. Yeah. We're grieving over it. Mm-hmm. We want to deal with it in a biblical way, but we are not going to hide it. Why is it that so many churches and Christian organizations don't seem to have learned what ought to by now mm-hmm. be an obvious course of action? Why is that? Arrogance, I think, on one level. Yeah. We think we can set the news, which right. we can't. And right. it really rubs salt into the wounds of those who were hurt by the scandal Absolutely. in the first place. Yeah. So that's the part of it that doesn't yeah. serve it doesn't serve people well in any way. Yeah, you know, and, and Jonathan, you're you know you're a dean at a Christian university. You're the dean of the School of Divinity there. You know, again, as a Christian organization, you know, I'm sure you all think through and have thought if God forbid if a scandal hits us with a faculty member or something like that. You know, here's how we have to deal with that. I'm sure you have protocol, and I'm sh- I'm sure you've discussed it. Yeah, and there have been cases where those kinds of things have have popped up. Sadly, you know, I think that something can set in in an organization where it it takes on its own inertia, and the preservation of the brand, so to speak, right. becomes right. the most important thing. And once that happens, it really is deadly because then yeah. you're not asking the question. What's the right thing to do? What are we obligated to do no matter what happens? Mm-hmm. You're asking a different set of questions about how you can sort of thread the needle and right. t- say just mm-hmm. enough or, you know, hold back on this and hope it will never come out. And those kinds of questions always are going to take you in the wrong direction. I think mm-hmm. the questions we have to be asking are, even if this brings down the whole thing, mm-hmm. what are we obligated to say? And if you ask that question, I think, Todd, you're right. The irony is that, you know, we've seen enough situations to know that actually covering it up tends to yeah. bring the whole thing down right. in a far worse way later on. Absolutely. But, but in the moment, I think whether or not that's the case, you just have to say, well, we're going to do what the Lord has told us. Right. To do. I mean, like and with the E.N.D. Campbell case. I mean, there's two things going on. There's the horrible committing of adultery uh, continually, but then there's this living a double life and the cover up and the pretending. And so when you, you know, don't act as the Church of Scotland did and handle it well and expose it for what it is and condemn it in in a proper way, you're participating in that second part of it, Mm -hmm. of living this lie. Yeah. And again, most, most people really do understand that a really good church or a really good Christian organization can be harmed by a predator or an adulterer or that kind of thing. Most people get that. And that's where just the insanity of the cover-up comes in, is that for the most part, churches and Christian organizations will be will be forgiven for mm-hmm. for having on their payroll somebody who turned out to be a scoundrel, you know, that fooled everybody. If they handle but, it. But when you cover these things up, it just becomes so toxic and it reveals a level of i think carl's right a a level of arrogance that ends up being the greater scandal in the end yeah it's it's really sad because with every christian organization and with every church i mean there are a whole lot of people who are 
growing and learning and are completely disconnected from that. And this has the power, and this is kind of going back to the example you shared earlier, Todd, this has the power to really just create all kinds of doubts in their mind. Right. Yeah. Well, it's been a sobering uh, podcast. Thanks very much for joining us, Jonathan. I think we've got plenty of material there to think about. And uh, it's an odd way to put it, but sort of sadly, kudos to the Free Church of Scotland for the way they handled what must have been an extremely painful situation, not only because of the nature of the sin involved and the public nature of the scandal, but also because of the deep affection and friendships that existed between Ian D. Campbell and his congregation and many members of the church. They did the right thing. They've set an example to the rest of us, but I'm sure it was not an easy or a light thing for them to do. So kudos to the Free Church for the way they handled this situation. We do want to recommend that you uh, check out Jonathan's website, Place for Truth. You can get to it via uh, the Alliance websites and also his great podcast, Theology on the Go, where in a total capitulation to the attention span of the modern age, (laughs) uh, he does these short podcasts on very deep issues. Seriously, uh, excellent podcast. Please check that out if you haven't done so already. We have a giveaway. It's not exactly what we were talking on, but it certainly connects to it in an important way. Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome by Kent and Barbara Hughes, which is really a book, I think, about character and Mm -hmm. integrity in ministry, of which, of course, falls and sin, uh, they're clearly connected to that. But we wanted to have a book giveaway that gave a more holistic picture of what Christian integrity in ministry looked like. And I don't think there's any better place to start than Kent and Barbara Hughes' Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome. So please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org. Consider donating and also see how you can possibly obtain a free copy of Kent Hughes's book. Until next time, we bid you farewell. Thank you for joining us. Thanks especially to our guest, uh, Jonathan Master. And we look forward to being with you all next week. Well, in spite of all of the demands that Amy places upon our budget, what with her Lexus lease and all of the specialty chocolates and the strawberries that we have to supply every time we record, we actually have a very modest budget, and it's supplied by a group of faithful supporters, a small group. So if you would be willing to join that group of supporters, we would love to have your support. So please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, to make a donation. It is the gifts that you make that enable us to be a strong and independent voice in the contemporary church. And we hope that you find value in mortification of spin and the work that we're doing here. So again, please consider giving support, and we are certainly thankful for that. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. 
To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... And this led to something of a division among Christians as to whether the Christians could support a man with these kind of allegations uh, against him. Well, I just think that statement itself leads to so many more questions. Um, Will politics ever save evangelicalism? That interview is next time. Join us then. That was really loud. Yeah, let me know when it's safe and I'll put it back, Ali. Yeah, we need. Carl's got blood pressure, y'all. <laughs> yeah, be careful. I could die any yeah. minute. You got to handle me with his. You got to handle me with kid gloves. His, his days are numbered real yeah. quick here. So. I'm living on borrowed time. Mm-hmm.